9. The armade. Under certain conditions, assume the outward form of organic bodies so this mineral substance, carbonate of lime, hidden away in the bowels of the earth, has taken the shape of these chambered bodies. I am not raising a merely fanciful and in real objection. Very learned men, in former days, have even entertained the notion that all the formed things found in rocks are of this nature, and if no such conception is at present held to be admissible, it is because long and varied experience has now shown that mineral matter never does assume the form and structure we find in fossils. If anyone were to try to persuade you that an oyster shell which is also chiefly composed of carbonate of lime had crystallized out of seawater, I suppose you would laugh at the absurdity. Your laughter would be justified by the fact that all experience tends to show that oyster shells are formed by the agency of oysters, and in no other way. And if there were no better reasons, we should be justified, on like grounds, in believing that globigerina is not the product of anything but vital activity. Happily, however, better evidence and proof of the organic nature of the globigerina than that of analogy is forthcoming. It so happens that calcareous skeletons, exactly similar to the globigerina of the chalk, are being formed, at the present moment, by minute living creatures, which flourish in multitudes, literally more numerous than the sands of the seashore, over a large extent of that part of the earth's surface which is covered by the ocean. The history of the discovery of these living globigerina, and of the part which they play in rock building, is singular enough. It is a discovery which, like others of no less scientific importance, has arisen, incidentally, out of work devoted to very different and exceedingly practical interests. When men first took to the sea, they speedily learned to look out for shoals and rocks, and the more the burden of their ships increased, the more imperatively necessary it became for sailors to ascertain with precision the depth of the waters they traversed. Out of this necessity grew the use of the lead and sounding line, and, ultimately, marine surveying which is the recording of the form of coasts and of the depth of the sea, as ascertained by the sounding lead, upon charts, at the same time, it became desirable to ascertain and to indicate the nature of the sea bottom, since this circumstance greatly affects its goodness as holding ground for anchors, some ingenious tar, whose name deserves a better fate than the oblivion into which it has fallen, attained this object by, arming, the bottom of the lead with a lump of grease, to which more or less of the sand or mud, or broken shells, as the case might be, adhered, and was brought to the surface, but, however well adapted such an apparatus might be for rough nautical purposes, scientific accuracy could not be expected from the armed lead, and to remedy its defects especially when applied to sounding in great depths Lieutenant Brooke, of the American Navy, some years ago invented a most ingenious machine, by which a considerable portion of the superficial layer of the sea bottom can be scooped out and brought up, from any depth to which the league descends, in 1853, Lieutenant Brooke obtained mud from the bottom of the North Atlantic, between Newfoundland and the Azores, at a depth of more than 10,000 feet, or 2 miles, by the help of the sounding apparatus, the specimens were sent for examination to Ehrenberg of Berlin, and to Bailey of West Point, and those able microscopists found that the steep sea mud was almost entirely composed of the skeletons of living organisms the greater proportion of these being just like the globigerina already known to occur in chalk. Thus far, the work had been carried on simply in the interests of science, but Lieutenant Brooks' method of sounding acquired a high commercial value. When the enterprise of laying down the telegraph cable between this country and the United States was undertaken, for it became a matter of immense importance to know 
not only the depth of the sea over the whole line, along which the cable was to be laid, but the exact nature of the bottom, so as to guard against chances of cutting or fraying the strands of that costly rope. The Admiralty consequently ordered Captain Damon, an old friend and shipmate of mine, to ascertain the depth over the whole line of the cable, and to bring back specimens of the bottom. In former days, such a command as this might have sounded very much like one of the impossible things which the young prince in the fairy tales is ordered to do before he can obtain the hand of the princess. However, in the months of June and July, 1857, my friend performed the task assigned to him with great expedition and precision, without, so far as I know, having met with any reward of that kind. The specimens of Atlantic mud which he procured were sent to me to be examined and reported upon. The result of all these operations island that we know the contours and the nature of the surface soil covered by the North Atlantic, for a distance of 1700 miles from east to west, as well as we know that of any part of the dry land, it is a prodigious plain one of the widest and most even plains in the world, if the sea were drained off, you might drive a wagon all the way from Valentia, on the west coast of Ireland, to Trinity Bay in Newfoundland, and, except upon one sharp incline about 200 miles from Valentia, I am not quite sure that it would even be necessary to put the skin on, so gentle are the ascents and descents upon that long route. From Valentia the road would lie downhill for about 200 miles to the point at which the bottom is now covered by 1700 fathoms of seawater. Then would come the central plain, more than a thousand miles wide, the inequalities of the surface of which would be hardly perceptible, though the depth of water upon it now varies from 10,000 to 15,000 feet, and there are places in which Mont Blanc might be sunk without showing its peak above water. Beyond this, the ascent on the American side commences and gradually leads, for about 300 miles, to the Newfoundland shore, almost the whole of the bottom of the central plain which extends for many hundred miles in a north and south direction is covered by a fine mud, which, when brought to the surface, dries into a grayish-white friable substance, you can write with this on a blackboard, if you are so inclined, and, to the eye, it is quite like very soft, grayish chalk, examined chemically. It proves to be composed almost wholly of carbonate of lime, and if you make a section of it, in the same way as that of the piece of chalk was made, and view it with the microscope, it presents innumerable globigerinae embedded in a granular matrix. Thus the steep sea mud is substantially chalk. I say substantially, because there are a good many minor differences, but as these had no bearing on the question immediately before us which is the nature of the globigerinae of the chalk it is unnecessary to speak of them. Globigerinae of every size, from the smallest to the largest, are associated together in the Atlantic mud, and the chambers of many are filled by a soft animal matter, this soft substance island in fact, the remains of the creature to which the Globigerina shell, or rather skeleton, owes its existence and which is an animal of the simplest imaginable description, it island in fact, a mere particle of living jelly, without defined parts of any kind without a mouth, nerves, muscles, or distinct organs, and only manifesting its vitality to ordinary observation by thrusting out and retracting from all parts of its surface long filamentous processes, which serve for arms and legs, yet this amorphous particle, devoid of everything which, in the higher animals, we call organs, is capable of feeding, growing, and multiplying, of separating from the ocean the small proportion of carbonate of lime which is dissolved in seawater, and of building up that substance into a skeleton for itself, according to a pattern which can be imitated by no other known agency, 
the notion that animals can live and flourish in the sea, that the vast depths from which apparently living Jebedrine have been brought up, does not agree very well with our usual conceptions respecting the conditions of animal life, and it is not so absolutely impossible as it might at first sight appear to be, that the Globidrinae of the Atlantic sea bottom do not live and die where they are found, as I have mentioned, the soundings from the great Atlantic plain are almost entirely made up of Globidrinae, with the granules which have been mentioned, and some few other calcareous shells, but a small percentage of the chalky mud perhaps at most some 5% of it is of a different nature, and consists of shells and skeletons composed of silex, or pure flint. These silicious bodies belong partly to the lowly vegetable organisms which are called diatomaceae, and partly to the minute and extremely simple animals, termed radiolaria. It is quite certain that these creatures do not live at the bottom of the ocean but at its surface where they may be obtained in prodigious numbers by the use of a properly constructed net. Hence it follows that these silicious organisms, though they are not heavier than the lightest dust, must have fallen, in some cases, through 15,000 feet of water, before they reached their final resting place on the ocean floor. And, considering how large a surface these bodies expose in proportion to their weight, it is probable that they occupy a great length of time in making their burial journey from the surface of the Atlantic to the bottom, but if the radiolaria and diatoms are thus rained upon the bottom of the sea, from the superficial layer of its waters in which they pass their lives, it is obviously possible that the Globidrine may be similarly derived, and if they were so, it would be much more easy to understand how they obtain their supply of food than it is at present. Nevertheless, the positive and negative evidence all points the other way. The skeletons of the full-grown, deep-sea globidrine are so remarkably solid and heavy in proportion to their surface as to seem little fitted for floating, and, as a matter of fact, they are not to be found along with the diatoms and radiolaria, in the uppermost stratum of the open ocean. It has been observed, again, that the abundance of globidrine, in proportion to other organisms of like kind, increases with the depth of the sea and that deep water globidrine are larger than those which live in the shallower parts of the sea, and such facts negative the supposition that these organisms have been swept by currents from the shallows into the deeps of the Atlantic. It therefore seems to be hardly doubtful that these wonderful creatures live and die at the depths in which they are found. Footnote 1, during the cruise of HMS Bulldog, commanded by Sir Leopold McClintock, in 1860, living starfish were brought up, clinging to the lowest part of the sounding line from a depth of 1260 fathoms, midway between Cape Farewell, in Greenland, and the Rock Hall Banks. Dr. Wallach ascertained that the sea bottom at this point consisted of the ordinary Globidrina ooze, and that the stomachs of the starfishes were full of Globidrina. This discovery removes all objections to the existence of living Globidrina at great depths, which are based upon the supposed difficulty of maintaining animal life under such conditions and it throws the burden of proof upon those who object to the supposition that the Globidrine live and die where they are found. However, the important points for us are, that the living Globidrine are exclusively marine animals, the skeletons of which abound at the bottom of deep seas, and that there is not a shadow of reason for believing that the habits of the Globidrine of the chalk differed from those of the existing species. But if this be true, there is no escaping the conclusion that the chalk itself is the dried mud of an ancient deep sea. In working over the soundings collected by Captain Damon, I was surprised to find that many of what I have called the granules of that mud were not, as one might have been tempted to think at first, the mere powder and waste of globidrine, 
but that they had a definite form and size. I termed these bodies, coccoliths, and doubted their organic nature. Dr. Wallach verified my observation, and added the interesting discovery that, not infrequently, bodies similar to these, coccoliths, were aggregated together into spheroids, which he termed, coccospheres. So far as we knew, these bodies, the nature of which is extremely puzzling and problematical, were peculiar to the Atlantic soundings, but, a few years ago, Mr. Sorby, in making a careful examination of the chalk by means of thin sections and otherwise, observed, as Ehrenberg had done before him, that much of its granular basis possesses a definite form. Comparing these formed particles with those in the Atlantic soundings, he found the two to be identical, and thus proved that the chalk, like the soundings, contains these mysterious coccoliths and coccospheres. Here was a further and a most interesting confirmation, from internal evidence, of the essential identity of the chalk with modern deep sea mud. Globigerine, coccoliths, and coccospheres are found as the chief constituents of both, and testify to the general similarity of the conditions under which both have been formed. Footnote 2, I have recently traced out the development of the coccoliths from a diameter of one seven thousandth of an inch up to their largest size which is about one one thousand six hundredth and no longer doubt that they are produced by independent organisms, which, like the Globigerina, live and die at the bottom of the sea. The evidence furnished by the hewing, facing, and superposition of the stones of the pyramids, that these structures were built by men, has no greater weight than the evidence that the chalk was built by Globigerina, and the belief that those ancient pyramid builders were terrestrial and air-breathing creatures like ourselves is not better based than the conviction that the chalk makers lived in the sea. But as our belief in the building of the pyramids by men is not only grounded on the internal evidence afforded by these structures, but gathers strength from multitudinous collateral proofs, and is clinched by the total absence of any reason for a contrary belief, so the evidence drawn from the Globigerina that the chalk is an ancient sea bottom, is fortified by innumerable independent lines of evidence, and our belief in the truth of the conclusion to which all positive testimony tends, receives the like negative justification from the fact that no other hypothesis has a shadow of foundation. It may be worthwhile briefly to consider a few of these collateral proofs that the chalk was deposited at the bottom of the sea. The great mass of the chalk is composed, as we have seen, of the skeletons of Globigerina and other simple organisms, embedded in granular matter, here and there, however, this hardened mud of the ancient sea reveals the remains of higher animals which have lived and died, and left their hard parts in the mud, just as the oysters die and leave their shells behind them, in the mud of the present seas, there are, at the present day, certain groups of animals which are never found in fresh waters, being unable to live anywhere but in the sea, such are the corals, those corallins which are called polyzoa, those creatures which fabricate the land shells, and are called brachiopoda, the pearly nautilus, and all animals allied to it, and all the forms of sea urchins and starfishes. Not only are all these creatures confined to salt water at the present day, but, so far as our records of the past go, the conditions of their existence have been the same, hence, their occurrence in any deposit is as strong evidence as can be obtained, that that deposit was formed in the sea. Now the remains of animals of all the kinds which have been enumerated occur in the chalk, in greater or less abundance, while not one of those forms of shellfish which are characteristic of fresh water has yet been observed in it. When we consider that the remains of more than 3,000 distinct species of aquatic animals have been discovered among the fossils of the chalk, 
that the great majority of them are of such forms as are now met with only in the sea, and that there is no reason to believe that any one of them inhabited fresh water. The collateral evidence that the chalk represents an ancient sea bottom acquires as great force as the proof derived from the nature of the chalk itself. I think you will now allow that I did not overstate my case when I asserted that we had as strong grounds for believing that all the vast area of dry land at present occupied by the chalk was once at the bottom of the sea, as we have for any matter of history whatever, while there is no justification for any other belief. No less certain is it that the time during which the countries we now call Southeast England, France, Germany, Poland, Russia, Egypt, Arabia, Syria, were more or less completely covered by a deep sea, was of considerable duration. We have already seen that the chalk island in places, more than a thousand feet thick. I think you will agree with me that it must have taken some time for the skeletons of the animalcules of a hundredth of an inch in diameter to heap up such a mass as that. I have said that throughout the thickness of the chalk the remains of other animals are scattered. These remains are often in the most exquisite state of preservation. The valves of the shellfishes are commonly adherent, the long spines of some of the sea urchins, which would be detached by the smallest jar, often remain in their places. In a word, it is certain that these animals have lived and died when the place which they now occupy was the surface of as much of the chalk as had then been deposited, and that each has been covered up by the layer of globigerina mud, upon which the creatures embedded a little higher up have, in like manner, lived and died but some of these remains prove the existence of reptiles of vast size in the chalk sea. These lived their time, and had their ancestors and descendants, which assuredly implies time, reptiles being of slow growth. There is more curious evidence, again, that the process of covering up, or, in other words, the deposit of the skeletons, did not go on very fast. It is demonstrable that an animal of the Cretaceous Sea might die that its skeleton might lie uncovered upon the sea bottom long enough to lose all its outward coverings and appendages by putrefaction, and that, after this had happened, another animal might attach itself to the dead and naked skeleton, might grow to maturity, and might itself die before the calcareous mud had buried the whole. Cases of this kind are admirably described by Sir Charles Lyell. He speaks of the frequency with which geologists find in the chalk a fossilized sea urchin to which is attached the lower valve of a crania. This is a kind of shellfish, with a shell composed of two pieces, of which, as in the oyster, one is fixed and the other free. The upper valve is almost invariably wanting, though occasionally found in a perfect state of preservation in the white chalk at some distance. In this case, we see clearly that the sea urchin first lived from youth to age, then died and lost its spines, which were carried away. Then the young crania adhered to the bared shell, grew and perished in its turn, after which, the upper valve was separated from the lower, before the echinus became enveloped in chalky mud, a specimen in the Museum of Practical Geology, in London, still further prolongs the period which must have elapsed between the death of the sea urchin and its burial by the globigerinae, for the outward face of the valve of Acrania, which is attached to a sea urchin micraster, is itself overrun by an encrusting coralline, which spreads thence over more or less of the surface of the sea urchin, it follows that, after the upper valve of the crania fell off, the surface of the attached valve must have remained exposed long enough to allow of the growth of the whole coralline. Since corallines do not live embedded in the mud, the progress of knowledge may, one day, enable us to deduce from such facts as these the maximum rate at which the chalk can have accumulated, and thus to arrive at the minimum duration of the chalk period. 
suppose that the valve of the crania upon which the coraline has fixed itself in the way just described is so attached to the sea urchin that no part of it is more than an inch above the face upon which the sea urchin rests. Then, as the coraline could not have fixed itself if the crania had been covered up with chalk mud, and could not have lived had itself been so covered, it follows, that an inch of chalk mud could not have accumulated within the time between the death and decay of the soft parts of the sea urchin and the growth of the coral into the full size which it has attained. If the decay of the soft parts of the sea urchin, the attachment, growth to maturity, and decay of the crania, and the subsequent attachment and growth of the coral in, took a year which is a low estimate enough, the accumulation of the inch of chalk must have taken more than a year, and the deposit of a thousand feet of chalk must, consequently, have taken more than 12,000 years. The foundation of all this calculation island of course, a knowledge of the length of time the crania and the coraline needed to attain their full size, and, on this head, precise knowledge is at present wanting. But there are circumstances which tend to show that nothing like an inch of chalk has accumulated during the life of a crania, and, on any probable estimate of the length of that life, the chalk period must have had a much longer duration than that thus roughly assigned to it. Thus, not only is it certain that the chalk is the mud of an ancient sea bottom, but it is no less certain that the chalk sea existed during an extremely long period, though we may not be prepared to give a precise estimate of the length of that period in years. The relative duration is clear, though the absolute duration may not be definable. The attempt to affix any precise date to the period at which the chalk sea began or ended its existence, is baffled by difficulties of the same kind but the relative age of the Cretaceous epoch may be determined with as great ease and certainty as the long duration of that epoch. You will have heard of the interesting discoveries recently made, in various parts of Western Europe, of flint implements, obviously worked into shape by human hands, under circumstances which show conclusively that man is a very ancient denizen of these regions. It has been proved that the old populations of Europe, whose existence has been revealed to us in this way, consisted of savages, such as the Esquimaux are now, that, in the country which is now France, they hunted the reindeer, and were familiar with the ways of the mammoth and the bison. The physical geography of France was in those days different from what it is now the river Somme. For instance, having cut its bed a hundred feet deeper between that time and this, and it is probable that the climate was more like that of Canada or Siberia than that of Western Europe, the existence of these people is forgotten even in the traditions of the oldest historical nations. The name and fame of them had utterly vanished until a few years back, and the amount of physical change which has been effected since their day renders it more than probable that, venerable as are some of the historical nations, the workers of the chipped flints of Hawks nor of Emians are to them, as they are to us, in point of antiquity. But, if we assign to these hoar relics of long-vanished generations of men the greatest age that can possibly be claimed for them, they are not older than the drift, or boulder clay, which, in comparison with the chalk, is but a very juvenile deposit. You need go no further than your own seaboard for evidence of this fact, that one of the most charming spots on the coast of Norfolk, Cromer, you will see the boulder clay forming a vast mass, which lies upon the chalk, and must consequently have come into existence after it. Huge boulders of chalk are, in fact, included in the clay and have evidently been brought to the position they now occupy by the same agency as that which has planted blocks of cyanite from Norway side by side with them. The chalk, then, is certainly older than the boulder clay. If you ask how much, I will again take you no further than the same spot upon your own coasts for evidence. 
I had spoken of the boulder clay and drift as resting upon the chalk. That is not strictly true. Interposed between the chalk and the drift is a comparatively insignificant layer, containing vegetable matter, but that layer tells a wonderful history. It is full of stumps of trees standing as they grew. Fir trees are there with their cones, and hazel bushes with their nuts, there stand the schools of oak and yew trees, beeches and alders, hence this stratum is appropriately called the forest bed. It is obvious that the chalk must have been upheft and converted into dry land before the timber trees could grow upon it, as the boles of some of these trees are from two to three feet in diameter. It is no less clear that the dry land thus formed remained in the same condition for long ages. And not only do the remains of stately oaks and well-grown firs testify to the duration of this condition of things, but additional evidence to the same effect is afforded by the abundant remains of elephants, rhinoceroses, hippopotamuses, and other great wild beasts, which it has yielded to the zealous search of such men as the Ref. Mr. Gunn, when you look at such a collection as he has formed, and bethink you that these elephantine bones did veritably carry their owners about, and these great grinders crunch, in the dark woods of which the forest bed is now the only trace. It is impossible not to feel that they are as good evidence of the lapse of time as the annual rings of the tree stumps. Thus there is a writing upon the wall of cliffs at Cromer, and whoso runs may read it. It tells us, with an authority which cannot be impeached, that the ancient seabed of the chalk sea was raised up, and remained dry land, until it was covered with forest, stocked with the great game whose spoils have rejoiced your geologists. How long it remained in that condition cannot be said, but the whirligig of time brought its revenges in those days as in these. That dry land, with the bones and teeth of generations of long-lived elephants, hidden away among the gnarled roots and dry leaves of its ancient trees, sank gradually to the bottom of the icy sea, which covered it with huge masses of drift and boulder clay. Sea beasts, such as the walrus, now restricted to the extreme north, paddled about where birds had twittered among the topmost twigs of the fir trees. How long this state of things endured we know not, but at length it came to an end. The upheft glacial mud hardened into the soil of modern Norfolk. Forests grew once more. The wolf and the beaver replaced the reindeer and the elephant, and at length what we call the history of England dawned. Thus you have, within the limits of your own county, proof that the chalk can justly claim a very much greater antiquity than even the oldest physical traces of mankind, but we may go further and demonstrate, by evidence of the same authority as that which testifies to the existence of the father of men, that the chalk is vastly older than Adam himself. The book of Genesis informs us that Adam, immediately upon his creation, and before the appearance of Eve, was placed in the Garden of Eden. The problem of the geographical position of Eden has greatly vexed the spirits of the learned in such matters, but there is one point respecting which, so far as I know, no commentator has ever raised a doubt. This island that of the four rivers which are said to run out of it, Euphrates and Hittical are identical with the rivers now known by the names of Euphrates and Tigris, but the whole country in which these mighty rivers take their origin, and through which they run, is composed of rocks which are either of the same age as the chalk or of later date, so that the chalk must not only have been formed, but, after its formation, the time required for the deposit of these later rocks, and for their upheaval into dry land, must have elapsed, before the smallest brook which feeds the swift stream of, the great river, the river of Babylon, began to flow, thus, evidence which cannot be rebutted, and which need not be strengthened, though if time permitted I might indefinitely increase its quantity compels you to believe that the earth, 
from the time of the chalk to the present day, has been the theater of a series of changes as vast in their amount as they were slow in their progress. The area on which we stand has been first sea and then land, for at least four alternations, and has remained in each of these conditions for a period of great length. Nor had these wonderful metamorphoses of sea into a land, and of land into sea, been confined to one corner of England, during the chalk period, or Cretaceous epoch. Not one of the present great physical features of the globe was in existence. Our great mountain ranges, Pyrenees, Alps, Himalayas, Andes, had all been upheft since the chalk was deposited, and the Cretaceous sea flowed over the sites of Sinai and Ararat. All this is certain, because rocks of Cretaceous or still a later date had shared in the elevatory movements which gave rise to these mountain chains, and may be found perched up, in some cases, many thousand feet high upon their flanks and evidence of equal cogency demonstrates that, though in Norfolk the forest bed rests directly upon the chalk, yet it does so, not because the period at which the forest grew immediately followed that at which the chalk was formed, but because an immense lapse of time, represented elsewhere by thousands of feet of rock, is not indicated at Cromer. I must ask you to believe that there is no less conclusive proof that a still more prolonged succession of similar changes occurred before the chalk was deposited. Nor have we any reason to think that the first term in the series of these changes is known. The oldest seabeds preserved to us are sands, and mud, and pebbles, the wear and tear of rocks which were formed in still older oceans. But, great as is the magnitude of these physical changes of the world, they have been accompanied by a no less striking series of modifications in its living, 